Pretty cool stuff, eh? That last photo there of all 125 of them sitting on those stairs I th is one of the favorite photos that I've seen that we've uh, been able to produce from First Christian Church in recent years. And uh, one of the cool things that happened as a result of that mission trip and them getting home was on Saturday when they arrived at home, uh, we called all the parents up and said, some of the kids want to get baptized. Are you cool with that? And they all showed up here and 14 of them got baptized on Saturday. So that's good news. That's really cool to hear. And um, as a matter of fact, we're going to have some more baptisms today and next week. And we thought that to help you get ready for those baptisms, we want to show you another video yet today of how not to do baptisms. All right. We know, I think we know how to do them. This is how not to do some baptisms. And it's kind of the introduction to today's message. Take a look on the screen. All right. So the reason that we wanted to see that today is because, as I said, we've got some baptisms scheduled yet for this afternoon, or this today, this morning. And I would suspect when I say that, that some of you go, oh, well, you know, they've got some people that are coming in to get baptized. Well, truthfully, we're hoping some of you in the room will get baptized today, even if you came to church and weren't prepared for that. We're ready for you to get baptized. We've got 
all kinds of volunteers. We've got clothes and underclothes and hair dryers and towels and all. We've even got photographers, photographers here ready to t- do it all. And some of you are sitting there, well, I didn't come planning to get baptized today. Well, I want to talk to you about that and see if we can't uh, come to a new arrangement for you and for what might happen yet today at the end of the service. In order to do all that and kind of set the stage for it, I'd like you to take a Bible, please, and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, if you don't own a Bible, you'll find there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Acts is about two-thirds of the way through the scriptures, three-quarters of the way, perhaps. And uh, the page numbers are on the screen behind me. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home, as, not just as our gift to you, but seriously, take it home as we want you to have it, all right? And we're going to read in Acts 2 in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to set up Acts 2 by reminding you of what happened at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Before the public really knew of him, he went about gathering a bunch of guys, mostly all guys, who were his original disciples, and 12 of them eventually came on board. But I want you to pay attention to a passage of Scripture in the book of Matthew that tells you what happened when the first four guys stepped into ministry with Jesus Christ. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Regular kind of guys, okay? Regular working guys. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called to them, and they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. They chose to follow Jesus Christ. And that decision to follow him changed their lives forever. And also, their decision to follow changed the course of human history. We are sitting in this room today. You can draw a direct line from us being here back to those guys and their willingness to follow Jesus Christ. Their decision to follow Jesus Christ changed the world. A big decision, yes, on their part, but it had even larger results. They were invited to follow Jesus into a larger story, a real-life story, yes, but a larger-than-life adventure. And that's what I'm inviting each of us into today as we choose to be men and women who would follow Jesus Christ. So these four guys, Matthew chapter 4, they get on board with Jesus, and they are with Jesus throughout his public ministry, and they're with him all the way through to some three and a half years later, when at first glance it looked like tragedy occurred. Do you recall three and a half years after Jesus started ministry, suddenly he was dead, he was crucified. The dream had come to an end, it appeared, but they didn't know the rest of the story. Actually, what happened was Jesus was killed, but then three days later, he rose from the dead. And seven weeks later after that, these guys, along with a bunch more people now who are followers of Jesus Christ, were together in Jerusalem on a party day called the Day of Pentecost. We don't have time to get into all the details today, but Acts chapter 2 is the outcome of the Day of Pentecost. People had come, Jewish people had come from all around the world to have the day of Pentecost to celebrate it in Jerusalem. They all spoke Jewish or perhaps Aramaic, but they also spoke other languages from the lands where they came from. And when they all got to Jerusalem, something happened 
that was a miraculous move of God, these followers of Jesus Christ in an instant could suddenly speak in languages that they'd never heard before, that they'd never studied before. And the people from outside the city, from outside the country are hearing these rough and ready, regular guys speaking their languages, their home, their home native languages. And they hear them praising God and it kind of stuns the whole city. It creates quite an uproar and Peter, one of the original guys from Matthew 4, stands up to tell everybody what's going on. That's the background to Acts chapter 2. Would you read it with me please? Acts chapter 2 verse 14. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Now you're going to want to get that Bible out folks because it's going to be helpful for you to follow along, Okay. This is what he said. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people aren't drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. There had been perhaps some thought that, man, these guys partied so hard overnight that they've released some latent part in their brain maybe that they can speak these languages. the, The people around them can't figure out. And Peter says, no, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And with that, Peter um, recites, quotes something that's a few hundred years old. He says, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. And basically saying, this is what happened. We're seeing prophecy from hundreds of years ago become reality. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Now, I gotta tell you, friends, when I used to read this passage of scripture years ago, I knew what, what I should expect. I should expect to see visions. Of late, with the more passing of birthdays, I don't know what side of that I'm, divide I'm on. Don't say a word. I don't know if I should be seeing visions or dreaming dreams. I have a feeling the dreams are more close to me than the visions, but that's a different matter, all right? Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and now he's going to quote, Peter's going to quote again, a passage of um, prophecy that these guys, everybody knew, at at this point he's going back a thousand years to the best king that Israel ever had, King David. And so he quotes this this language, this this, um, prose, if you will, that's a thousand years old. David said, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. And at this point, a thousand years before it happened, David was talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, You won't abandon me to the realm of the dead. You won't let my body see decay. 
Verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. And that's the case. Jesus was one of David's descendants. You can look through the genealogy and you can see the son of the son of the son of a, you know, and you can get all the way from David all the way to Jesus. Seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And he has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, in light of all of this, because you know all this, because of the erection, of everything that I've said so far, he says, Be aware of this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In light of everything that we've learned and that we killed the Messiah, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. When Peter's talking about for all who are far off there, it's not just geographic, but it's also far off in chronology. In other words, we are the ones who are far off. We're 2,000 years removed from this, and yet this promise is for us, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, there's some cool things in here that I want to kind of unpack for you today to help you understand why we're coming to a place where we're asking some of you to consider getting baptized. I want you to note that the scriptures here tell us that this idea of Jesus dying was an intentional act, an intentional plan drawn by a divine architect, namely God. Look at verse 23 again. We see that the idea of Jesus dying was a deliberate plan conceived in heaven and... This week I was thinking, man, that's quite, that's quite incredible to think. It has some implications, if you will. Something about the situation, something about humanity's situation was so messed up that God got engaged in a gruesome, deathly plan that involved the death of his son. Think about it. What kind of dilemma, what kind of problem, what kind of situation must have been so horrendous that an act like Jesus' death, would be initiated by God. Scripture says it was a deliberate plan put in place by God. We know what the result of it all was, if you look in verse 36, that the problem was resolved through Jesus' death, thus moving his title to both Lord and Messiah. Some of you may have a Bible today that doesn't say Messiah, but say Lord and Christ. And something happened to get Jesus from heaven to death to resurrection to becoming Lord and Messiah. Big problem. What was the problem? Humanity's inclination to sin. As a matter of fact, it's more than an inclination. It's the way we're made. The Bible says that all of us are sinned. I, do you know anyone who never sinned, who never messed up? I, mean, I, I suspect you're like me. You've got some really great f- friends and people who are really wonderful, fine folk. 
But along the way, you've also met, you've met some dirty, rotten, lousy scoundrels. And it's easy to see sin in their lives and just at least quietly think you wouldn't dare say it out loud, say, well, if God can never come up against sin, then those people are in trouble. You know, and you go, you go given everything they've done, I won't say it to anyone but myself. They deserve everything they're going to get. Kind of feel that way from time to time. But what do you do about the good folk if sin cannot be tolerated by God, if sin and God can never come hand in hand, then what are those good folk going to do with their sin? Let alone the bad louses. What are the good folk going to do? If you can't get to heaven with sin, how do you get rid of it? Well, that's where this business of Lord and Messiah, Lord and Christ comes in. Go back again and look at verse 27. Peter is quoting from King David. Material written a thousand years before. And he says, There's a holy one coming whose body would not be stuck in the realm of the dead. It would not be left in a place of decay. Apparently, one key to understanding all this stuff is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 32, uh, um, Peter says, We are all witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. They'd seen Jesus alive post-crucifixion. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that some 500 people saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion. And Peter was saying, Jesus' resurrection predicted some thousand years beforehand. Jesus' resurrection proves that he was somebody absolutely extraordinary. And this deliberate plan put in play by God has a very phenomenal, remarkable ending. That Jesus was indeed the anointed one. The word Messiah means anointed one. The word Christ means anointed one. In scripture, in the context of the people of Israel, kings were always anointed. They actually had oil poured on their head. And because Jesus was a descendant of David, raised from, then raised from the dead, this all gave proof that Jesus was and is the expected descendant of David. And the resurrection proved that Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah, and Jesus has power over sin and death. So that any sin of any sort could be forgiven. Sin can't come up against God. You've got to get forgiveness of that sin to be in a relationship with God to get to heaven. And yet Jesus provides, if you will, a buffer. Jesus provides a blanket of forgiveness so a person can get up against God, a person can get to heaven. Sin of any sort can be forgiven. Sin of the dirty, rotten louse who needs a lot of forgiveness, if you will, at least in our head does. And also the sin is everybody, uh, sin of anyone who we might say, well, they're really a good person, but you know, they're just slightly flawed. You know that slightly flawed position? Can't come against God either. Can't come up against God. Only a forgiven person can be standing up against God and get to heaven. And for the people who are listening to Peter, it was all news. This was startling. Jesus' life now was suddenly, he, he, suddenly they're going, oh, we should have paid more attention. We thought he was some charismatic, itinerating rabbi wandering around Galilee who managed to get a few followers. But no. Now his life, his death, his resurrection 
It demanded they rethink who they were and what they had, part they might have played in Jesus' death because his ministry now demanded a response acknowledging, hey, we either participated, we were in the crowd that caused him to be handed over to, to crucifixion, or at least, at the very least, we acquiesced in either case or the, and, you know, anywhere along that continuum. You're in trouble. What are we going to do? Verse 36. Therefore, let Israel, all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter's saying, you did it. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This news cut them to the heart. What does that mean? They're startled, they're stunned, amazed, dumbfounded, astonished kind of overwhelmed, dazed, upset, their actions or inaction, their participation or acquiescence to Jesus, to Jesus' crucifixion, it had caused the Messiah to be killed. And their immediate response is, we shouldn't have done that. We should not have done that. We are in deep, deep trouble. What are we going to do? And Peter gives them an answer. He says, repent and be baptized. Straight up. There's no sense of, well, you've, now you've got to get your life right with God and you've got to get a little better today and a little better tomorrow and a little better after that. And eventually one day you might be able to come up against God. You might one day be good enough to get into heaven. No, 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 no. This is, here's what you can do. You've got to repent. You've got to change your life approach. You've got to get baptized and rely on the power of God released in the work of Jesus Christ and his name seals the deal. Now, I gotta tell you this. When you see that up on the screen, repent and be baptized, rely on Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sins. A legitimate question that needs to be asked there, do I have to do all three in order to be saved? Do I have to do all three in order to have my sins forgiven? And I will tell you that there are some brothers and sisters in the Christian traditions of other denominations, if you will, who will say, yes, you have to have all three. Some traditions, like Roman Catholics, you know, our brothers and sisters there, the, the fellow Christians in, who are Lutherans and Methodists, they say you have to be baptized in order to have your sins forgiven. And if you've not been baptized, you won't go to heaven. That's why they baptize infants. Because they realize and recognize that infants may have, do have, according to Scripture, a latent sin possibility within them, just by virtue of being human. And thus they say, we need to baptize those infants as soon as possible in case, God forbid, the most tragic thing happens and that baby dies at 12, 12 days old. At least that baby will go into the presence of God and will not be forever condemned to hell because of the sin in his or her soul. Does that make sense? That's why they, a significant reason why our, our brothers and sisters in those traditions baptize infants. We would say within our tradition, the baptism is not tied to salvation. For us here, we say repentance brings forgiveness of sins. That repentance is an acknowledgement of sin. And then as we come to that place, we say, man, I've got sin in my life. I'm cut to the heart. What should I do? I repent of that sin. I say, God, forgive me of that sin. I'm turning away from it. I'm making a decision today to be different. And the first thing I'm doing in light of that forgiveness being given to me, the first step of my new life approach then is that I'm going to get baptized. So the first act after repentance, after forgiveness is in play, is baptism. 
And we say that for this reason, see if you can follow my logic here, that forgiveness is all about an act of God on God's part for, on our behalf. If we have to get baptized to be saved, then that's us doing something. And that flies in the face, from my perspective and the perspective of our church, that flies in the perspective of grace. If, grace, if the grace of God is given to us freely, with us not having to do anything to receive it, then baptism suddenly feels like something we have to do in order to receive the grace. Does that make sense? So we're saying, no, you come to God, God forgive me, God does a dramatic work in your life and in your heart right then, and then in response to that gift of grace, you turn the other way and you get baptized. And I would say, though, quite bluntly, if you say here today you're following God and you're accessing God's grace, you're accessing Jesus' work, and that you're expecting divine forgiveness and love to come into your life, and you've not been baptized, then I would challenge you how well you're doing in the following department. Repentance should be followed by baptism. We have all kinds of examples of this throughout the New Testament particularly, where people come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and the first thing that happens is they get baptized. For example, there's a story in the book of Acts chapter 8 about an Ethiopian government official, a guy, by the, a guy who is way up and he's, he's traveling through Israel, and he runs into one of Jesus' disciples, a guy by the name of Philip. And he says, hey, come up, sit in my chariot. And they're traveling along. And he says, what's been going on in Jerusalem these days? And Philip, Philip begins to tell him and about Jesus, and about Jesus' death, his resurrection. And, and this guy is kind of overwhelmed. He's cut to the heart. And he goes, I need that forgiveness. I'm, and he, and the, look what happens. Here it is in Acts chapter 8. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the Ethiopian said, look. Here's water. What can stand it? I mean, this is my opportunity. What can stand the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the man went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. In other words, came to an understanding of his walk, of his need of Jesus Christ. He makes this decision, and his first act is to get baptized. That's what you see in verse 40 of the passage we read. With many other words, Peter pleads with the people, save yourselves from this corrupt generation, Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Jump to head to the next slide there. There you go. With many words, he warns them, he pleads with them and immediately they're baptized. They're cut to the heart. They realize, man, we've got a problem here. We need to get our relationship with God in right place. And their first response after that cutting of the heart, after that sense of I need God's forgiveness, their first act of discipleship is to get baptized. And so I would say, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, where you've already been cut to the heart somewhere along the line, and you go, man, I need, to, I need to be able to get up against God. I need to get the sin of my life covered with the work of Jesus Christ. If that's you, and you haven't been baptized yet, then I ask you, what, what, what are you doing? What's going on? See, it's easy, it's easy for us to step away from Acts 2 and say, man, I wasn't there in Acts. I, 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 why should I worry? I didn't participate in Jesus' crucifixion or stand by, idly by while it took place. Yeah, I get that. But Jesus' death is still for you and it still warrants a response. If you're decided, if you made a decision to walk with Christ and you're not baptized, I want to challenge your walking. If you're here today and you say, man, I'm not a follower, well, I would pray that you would be cut to the heart. Seriously, just like what we see in Acts 2, 40, 41. I pray that you would be cut to the heart 
and that you would come to the place where you say, I need the forgiveness of God for my sin. Because scripture is quite plain, friends. Salvation comes through the work of Jesus Christ, not through you just getting progressively better and better. I would suggest that you be a person of repentance, all of us in this room. Repentance makes you a Christian. And then baptism tells you and tells all, tells God you've been cut to the heart by Jesus' death and resurrection and you're doing what the fellows did in Matthew chapter four. You're following. You're stepping into the big adventure. You're stepping into full trust in God, which is, man, that's, that's the way to live. I'll ask you, will you follow? And if so, how far? Will you take on the journey of adventure, seeing what God might bring to you and through you? Just like the fishermen in Matthew chapter 4, who became change agents for the world. Will you follow? How far will you go? Let me tell you the story um, of a woman who, I mean, she followed Jesus to some unusual, unusual lengths. Her name was Susie Carson. She was born in Canada in 1868, some 25 years or so after this church was established. She graduated from medical school in Toronto um, as a young lady, and then she was in private practice for six years until she met a fellow by the name of Petrus Reinhardt. That was in 1894. Reinhardt was a uh, missionary with the China Inland Mission and they got married that year in 1894, and off they went to China. The immediate goal of the Reinhardts once they arrived in China and to follow this call of God on their lives to be missionaries and to see people come to Jesus over in China was that they wanted to um, learn to, to speak Tibetan and work among the Tibetans. That was their immediate goal. And then once they kind of had that established working among the Tibetans who lived of the Tibetans who lived in China, then eventually their ultimate ambition was to get to Lhasa. Lhasa at that point was the capital of Tibet and um, no Westerner had been there since 1864. Pardon me, since 1846. I got my numbers backwards. 1846, some 50 years prior. They had a baby while they were getting ready. And in May of 1898, they're going to go to Lhasa where no one from the West has been for more than 50 years. And they're going to go, and they're going to tell the people who, who were Tibetans, we're going to tell them of Jesus Christ. If you were to fly there today from where they started to Lhasa, it's a, it's a flight of about 800 miles. But you can see on the map behind me that they took a rather circuitous route. That's because it's all mountain range. They knew they were going to have to take, um, take a long way around to get, make it the easiest way, the highest point they were ever going to be was at 16,400 feet up, way up in, in terms of you're getting up there in the air, starting to get thin. They carried with them enough food and supplies for some two years. They figured it would take them two years to get there, to be there, and then make their way back. It also took along several hundred Bibles that had been translated into Tibetan. And all went well through May, June, and into July. They had with them lots of horses and three guides who were going to show them the way. And in July, two of the guides came and said, mm, we're not up for this. And they left. No warning, just two of the guides left. And so they went on. So then it was May, June, July, August. The third guide who was leading them to Lhasa said, I want to go home. The first two had just left without saying a word. At least the third guy said, I'm done. I want to go home. And so off he went. 
in August of that year, after the guide had left, medical doctor, missionary, with a little baby by themselves and their horses, the baby died. They buried him by the side of the trail and continued their way. At that point, they were at 14,000 feet above sea level. And in September, less than a month after the baby had died, they were attacked. Just the two of them are by themselves now. They were attacked by a group of bandits, and all their horses except three of them were stolen. So as they're looking at their camp and all the stuff they've got, and there are three horses, they decide, we can't keep all this stuff, and so they just abandoned some of their goods and their supplies. And on September 26th, they'd kind of come to the end of the rope, and uh, they're, they're, they're camped up against a river, excuse me, and don't know what to do next. And they know there are some Tibetans across the other side of the river, and so Petrus says, September 26th, I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to see what I can do. And he left with his wife his big revolver, and all the silver that he had, because silver was the currency of that time. This is what she said. He started away cheerfully, telling me not to be afraid, but to use his big revolver if necessary. He said he would return before dark. When he was just a few steps away, he turned to wave his hand and said, Ta-ta. He followed a little path until out of sight. And I never saw him again. She's all alone now a young woman in the mountains of Tibet, in the the area between Tibet and China. After a few days, she began the long walk back to China, relying on her faith, her knowledge of the culture, if you will, and her ability with her silver and her own wits to buy horses and guides. It didn't go so well at times, though. At one point, she hired two men who accepted the job to guide her with the intent to rob and rape her. She spent a cold night, she said, in a swamp listening as her guides sat around the fire tossing out threats of violence and rape. And when she finally arrived back in China two months later, her hair had turned completely white. The end of 1898. It took her two years to get home to Canada. (laughs) But this was a woman who said, if God's called me to go to China, I'm going to go to China. So she remarried a widowed missionary from China, and by 1902 they were back in China, again preparing to go to Lhasa. She got poor health, died, 1908, leaving behind a two-month-old baby. And you're going, well, a lot of good it did her to follow Jesus. I get it. It was an adventure It was an adventure to follow regardless of the cost. And there are people in this room, I think most of us are saying, thankfully God hasn't called me to that. Yeah, he hasn't. Maybe, maybe there's somebody God's calling you to that. But what has God called you to? Would you follow no matter where he said he would go? Will you even today follow into the first act of discipleship? And frankly, baptism, as it looks at it, as we look at it today, seems fairly small in comparison to, say, someone like Susie Carson Reinhardt. But in the context of following Jesus Christ, it's your first step. And when the disciples in Matthew chapter 4 said, Yeah, we followed, they changed the world. Baptism may seem like a small step, but it will change your world. So I would encourage you, be baptized today. We're ready. 
We got clothes, we got underclothes, we got hair dryers, volunteers, privacy boots. Even the photographers are ready. Are you? Straight up? Are you? Here's what the plan is. You're going to stand. We're going to spend some time in worship and prayer in just a moment. And if you have a need, we're going to, some pastors and elders for the church are going to be here. And we'd like to pray with you. When we stand, if you want to get baptized, that'd be a great opportunity for you to head to the back of the room and there'll be volunteers back there leading you where to go. Then we're going to step into communion and Robert's going to lead us through communion. And after communion, we'll see who wants to get baptized. Okay? I'm telling you, we don't have any plants in this service. There's nobody that we know of that's planning to get baptized today in the 1050 service. All right? So, pardon me, in the 920 service. So let's, let's go for, make a run for it and see who God wants to work in their lives today. So, Let's start by standing together and praying if we can. Father, you've called us to follow you through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I don't know that any of us are going to China or to Tibet, maybe. But you have called us to follow you in the daily events of our lives and in this business of repentance followed by baptism. And Lord, there's some in the room maybe haven't got that far yet. For those, God, who have said they've walked with you for a long time and yet haven't got baptized, I pray that you'd call them to this act of discipleship. For those in the room, God, who have, well, they're cut to the heart right now because they've not started any of this. Lord, for those... I pray that you'd help them to come to a place where they'd pray a prayer that simply says, God, forgive me of my sins. I want to be able to come up against you. I want to be able to lean in against you and lean into who you are. And then, Lord, for them, call them to a, to a place where they'll be baptized today. Uh, speak to us, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.